Greetings to you, and welcome back to the Institute of World Mission podcast. Now, if you are new here, we are super happy to welcome you to the community of the Adventist missions enthusiasts, practitioners, teachers, supporters. You get the idea. We are a group who are passionate about unreached people groups. We truly care about living effective missional lives in new cultures, we want to be part of God's mission in these remarkable times. Now, today, I'd like to bring to your attention an interview with Elder John Thomas. Just a couple of words about John. Elder Thomas is an associate secretary serving at the General Conference. He has a lifetime of experience supporting Adventist missionaries, and currently he oversees the African continent divisions. The interview you are about to hear is a part of an online meeting we recently had on missionary safety. You'll get to hear the main presentation. I have to say it was followed by a terrific Q&A time, but we won't have enough time here on the podcast to include the whole thing. However, if you want to access the entire event in a video format, and also to see the documents Elder Thomas developed and presented, which you will now hear him refer to in the interview. For all of this, you'll need to go to the IWM website, log in or create an account, whichever you need to do, and find all these resources in the webinar section. All right, that's how to get access to the entire experience. Today, we wanted to bring you the most important part of this in this audio format on the podcast. I trust this interview will take you one step closer to a clear philosophy and, actually, most importantly, clear practice of missionary safety. You and your family, your safety is crucially important to us, to the church. We're praying for you every day. Now, on to the interview. Welcome to the Institute of World Mission Weekly Podcast, a show for Adventist mission enthusiasts striving to live, serve, and witness cross-culturally. Visit us at iwm.adventist.org podcast to view this podcast's show notes, links, and previous episodes. Institute of World Mission is your partner in the mission field. John, you've been involved for many years in the um, General Conference Crisis Committee and also part of developing guidelines for cross-cultural workers, for missionaries in how to handle dangerous situations. So missionary safety is our topic today, and uh, I'd love to address you with this first question, which is, what kind of safety risks Adventist expatriate missionaries should be aware of? Because when times are good, we don't think about it. But uh, there are dangers. So what kind of dangers are out there for us? Okay, uh, that's a hard question to fully answer because danger comes in many forms. And it also comes in geographic areas in a different manner. Some people live with the potential of volcano eruptions. Uh, some people live with political unrest. Some people live with a disease such as malaria, dengue fever. Uh, some people live with civil unrest. So the dangers come from people or from nature in very unpredictable ways. The biggest answer for your question, probably the most practical one, 
is you need to, when you arrive in some location and even before you go, begin to look at what are the potential risks of the place I'm going to go and study up on what they are, how you as a person can assess them, how you can uh, see the warning signs, and then what the appropriate action is based on what you have assessed. Thank you, John. We live right now in unpredictable times, and perhaps this is uh, one of the reasons why we decided to talk about missionary safety. I see, for example, just a quick example, uh, lots of talk right now from the United Nations that the virus situation in the world will cause major uh, hunger issues in, in many countries. So this is just to kind of begin this conversation that there may be more dangerous situations than we are aware of because of coronavirus. What do you think about that? We have to look carefully at what places like World Health Organization and United Nations State. Because as time goes on, it becomes quite evident that those organizations do not unilaterally evaluate and uh, disseminate information without some bias. We all suffer from biases. All organizations suffer from biases. And when we'd like to think that the United Nations World Health Organization are totally unbiased and equal in all situations, it is looking like that may not be the case. So when it comes to this virus, whatever those organizations say is heavily influenced by what information is fed to them. For instance, if you look at the virus statistics out of Africa, the numbers are very low. And yet in most of the city areas of Africa, people live in very, very crowded and often unsanitary environments. So how can it be so low in those crowded places, even India, most crowded place on earth? The numbers seem to be low. Well, how do they determine the numbers? Do they have testing kits that are valid? Uh, do they report accurately the testing kits? We already know from China that the numbers that were first reported from China are not what is coming out now. So when we look at statistics that any organization reveals, we have to ask the question, how reliable is the information that they are reporting? What is the source? You probably have a better pulse you, you, you missionaries, where you are on the local level of crisis than the United Nations is going to have because they are only going to rely on information that was fed to them. You may know from your local news, from your community, how many people have turned up sick, are the hospitals being crowded? Well, United Nations may not know that. So when it comes to this global pandemic, uh, you have to look and see how is it affecting the area where you are. What are the resources you have, such as hospital resources? Can you get tested if you start feeling bad? How old are the tests that they are going to give you? What kind of lab are those tests actually studied in to determine the outcome? So your question is a very involved question. Common sense would dictate that look around your area and find out how are the local people dealing with it. If there's a local Adventist physician who's in your area, ask them what they have seen. Uh, we are just dealing with a doctor family who are hospital in West Africa because they felt it's time to get out. But they have seen no virus people come through in all the testing they have done over the last several weeks, not one. Some people have even started suggesting that if you live in a malaria-prone country and you have taken malaria prophylaxis for many years, you have already gotten immunity to it. That may be the case, but have actual reliable studies been done to prove that? So anyway, it's a complicated question, and I'm sorry my answer is a little bit convoluted, but uh, there are many factions to it. 
Yes, absolutely. We understand that this is a very complex issue. Our approach to today's interaction is uh, it's not just the coronavirus situation that, that we want to take into account today. It might cause some kind of a dangerous situation for you as a missionary out there, but um, whether directly or indirectly, but there can be other dangers such as local wars or you know, regional wars, uh, disasters. Uh, John, back to the first question, speaking of these kind of risks, in your experience now working with missionaries for decades, right, for many, many years, what kind of situations have you seen happening in missionaries' lives? most common one, if we stack them up over the years, is civil unrest. There's a political election. Uh, some factions are not happy with the election. They think that the election was rigged. They feel like uh, uh, votes were tampered with, etc. And so there's certain parties that uh, provide an unsafe environment in your community. In most of those cases, people just shelter where they are and, and wait for things to calm down. Some cases we have to evacuate them because it has got to the point where a threat to life is a potential. The other issues we deal with on a common basis are illnesses or medical complications that cannot be handled locally and they have to be you know, medevaced or emergency flown out to a facility that can treat their illness. So those are the two that uh, come fairly high. Probably a third one are, are uh, earth phenomena, such as earthquakes or volcanoes in areas that uh, cause life to be uh, risky and people need to move. And our audience today, whether here or on Workplace, or if you'll watch this later on video, uh, we just want to truly make sure we do not want to create any additional fear. We don't want to discourage you. We don't want to make you fearful about anything. The only reason for our conversation today is because we want to be mindful and provide needed information that you should have should something happen. So, um, John, uh, back to um, you and uh, probably the most important question today, whatever is the emergency that requires our action, how should we plan for emergency? Planning for emergency needs to be done before it happens. It's any scenario. If you do not have a plan in mind, then you have to invent one under tremendous duress when you are not capable of thinking broadly, you are not capable of looking at what alternate resources you may have, you are simply scrambling to do something on short notice. So it's very important to, when you arrive in a location, and even if you've been there for years now and you haven't done this yet, is to be able to put together some thoughts or ideas or plans based on certain scenarios that are likely to take place in your area. And we will go through a little bit later on here a document that will help you be able to see some things that you should be looking at seriously as you plan to mitigate against any kind of emergency that could arise. So, John, please take us through these recommendations. What should missionaries have in mind in terms of being prepared for emergency? Okay. Uh, a couple of comments to begin with. We have asked every division especially the coordinator who is in control of volunteers and full-time missionaries, to make sure that division has a voted crisis management plan. Some divisions like SSD have a very detailed plan and they have shared it with all entities. Other divisions have next to nothing. 
So when I go through this document, I have pulled the information out of all kinds of resources, pages and pages, uh, both from what our divisions have versus what uh, other organizations use, in a, and made a summary form to try and help you have a skeleton of stuff that you can look at as you try and develop something for yourself. So you see my red statement in the top says, failure to plan for a crisis is planning to fail in a crisis. You cannot adequately manage a crisis if you haven't beforehand made some contingencies that you can go back now and apply. So let's go through a few things. Every organization, whether it's the division, the union, an education facility, a hospital, your, uh, the place where you are by yourself can be considered an organization in this case. You should have some oversight board review and preferably vote to accept whatever outline you are going to have for management crisis. That program should be shared and be viewed by everybody who is in your organization and covered with new people when they arrive. So often it was done two years ago, but new people have never been exposed to the document or the procedure because nobody thought to orient them to it when they came. Somebody needs to be designated to be in charge. Even if it is your own family at an organization, somebody, and in this case, it's probably the father, but it could be the mother, needs to be the designee who will make final decisions to be implemented. If you don't have a designee, then people begin to get in an argumentative phase and nobody can make a decision. So you need to agree ahead of time the buck is going to stop somewhere. Sorry, that's an English saying, but uh, you know, there needs to be a final decision point and that person needs to be allowed to operate. They need to have power to act, to implement whatever was decided, adjusted according to what the situation is and implement it, manage your resources. Somebody should also be designated to communicate. Now, this doesn't apply to an individual family necessarily, but it could if news media shows up and wants to interview you, who's the person who's going to speak? If you are head of a hospital, if you are head of an institution, uh, you must have somebody who is authorized and the whole institution needs to know. Nobody talks to the press except this person. Otherwise, you are going to have everybody reporting it differently the way they see it. And the news media will very quickly say, nobody knows what's going on. Uh, you know very well if we stood at four corners of an intersection and we saw an accident, everybody will see the same accident, but they will all tell a different story. Is one right and one wrong? No, they are all pieces of the whole truth. So you need to have one voice that is going to report. And then you need to practice or simulate your plan. Uh, when I was in Kenya as a missionary and they had a political election that went... Uh, uh, very poorly. There was lots of rioting in town, people being killed by the thousands and so forth. And we were told by the U.S. Embassy to be on standby to leave at any moment. You had to have a plan. We actually had what we would call in school a fire drill where an alarm would go and everybody would run to the places they were designated to meet. They would gather the supplies they were supposed to get we would get the vehicles to evacuate everybody and, and the faculty and students would all get in the vehicles like you are ready to go. How long did that take? The U.S. Embassy said you must be out of your campus in seven minutes. Can you get out of the campus in seven minutes? 
You don't know unless you have a plan and you try and you adjust it to make sure you can. So you must do some kind of practice or simulation of implementing your plan. All right, now let's go to the topic of the person in charge as mentioned above. The prime, prime purpose of any plan is the safety of everybody. If you do not include safety evaluation in your plan, then the story can be a sad one. Who are you responsible for if you are the person in charge? Your own family? Do you have 50 employees on the campus? Are they children? Are they a mixture of men and women? Are they non-nationals who you have to deal with? What about ISEs and volunteers? What is the scope of who you have to cover during this emergency? What is the geographical location you cover? If you are a division ISE emergency management person, you cover ISEs in numerous countries all over your division. That's a huge scope of what you have to deal with. If it's your family in uh, Thailand by themselves, your scope of coverage is much less. What methods of communication do you have during an emergency? Often in many countries, the first thing that goes off is your mobile phone. The government shuts off the phone system. So how are you going to communicate? There are many options available. We don't have time today to go through them all. Maybe a future session we, we might discuss that. But you need to know what are the possibilities of communicating. What medical facilities are near you that can treat whatever you might be exposed to? And if not, where do you have to go to get it and how will you get there? How long does it take? What arrangements have to be made? For instance, if you have to get a hold of uh, ACE, the emergency medical evacuation, how long does it take them to respond in your area to get you to the adequate facilities? We like to think because there's emergency contact, they'll be here immediately. I'll give you my case. I was in Tajikistan up in the mountains. It took four days before the Medivac Learjet was authorized to land in Tajikistan and take me away. I could get help. I broke my upper thigh in four places. No medication of any kind for four days before they came. So even though I was trained in emergency procedures, etc., I had all the right contacts, the phone numbers. I called, uh, in that case, it was uh, Europe Assist. Within 10 minutes of my accident, I got them on the phone. It took four days to get the permissions to get into Tajikistan. So know what your resources are, very, very important thing. Embassies, where is your nearest embassy that can help you? Do you have a contact number to reach them? Do you have a name of who the person is that uh, represents your country? And in many cases today, when missionaries come from all over, the place you are serving probably doesn't have an embassy from your country. But often embassies have sharing arrangements with other nations. So a U.S. embassy has many links to other countries for foreign you know, expatriate workers. Do some checking. Maybe your, your division secretary will know uh, what resources there are for embassy assisting. Who else do you have to notify if there's an emergency? Do you have to call IPRS? Do you have to notice, notify Adventist Risk Management, ACE Emergency Services? Who do you need to notify based on the condition you potentially are facing? Do you have legal information on all the people under your control? Do you have copies of their passports? Do you have uh, copies of whatever uh, country ID? Do you have contact information for them? We find out routinely when there's an emergency somewhere and we contact the division secretary that they know where all the ISEs and the volunteers are, but they don't have their personal contact. 
So how do we how do they reach them? So please, on arrival, make sure you give to your superiors a copy of your documents and a way to reach you so that they can get a hold of you in emergencies. When we do any training with divisions, we tell them, you need a form you give to every person that comes that contains the emergency information so it can be used without delay. Do you have any sub-levels in your organization that you have to work through? Or do you have the authority to make decisions on your own? As an ISE or volunteer, can you evacuate or do you have to go through your division to evacuate? In most cases, if you are serving within the church structure, you have to go through your division and ARM, Adventist Risk Management, before you can activate any type of airlift evacuation. All right, and some general guidelines now when you are in an emergency situation, what you need to do. Assess the situation. Assessment is your biggest defense and your biggest predictor of action. Assess the situation carefully. What do you know? How reliable is it? Does it come from multiple resources consistently? What do the local places say versus what does international news say? Assess the situation carefully. What is the probability of this happening, the timing associated with it? Is it going to get worse? Is it stable? What is the most dangerous thing in this situation? What are your resources for help? Is there international help? Is there local government help? Is there some kind of other help? Can you rely on local people to help you? Do you have a plan to match the crisis? If not, you need to formulate one in a rush. How many are affected and in how many different locations? So kind of a repeat of what we did before, but it's coming down now to the actual event. Who is in charge at the location? What methods of communication can you follow? What options do you have? Shelter in place, almost always a good option, which is what most of us are doing now. What will you need when you shelter in place? Obviously, communication, reliable source of food, water, medical supplies, safety. Okay, what do you have to provide for safety if you shelter in location? If you're on a campus with a wall or fence around it, if you have to get out in an emergency, is there some way out the back rather than through the front gate? If not, how are you going to get out if there's a problem at the front gate? All things to think about. If you have to leave, where, when, how can you leave safely? On what route? And how is the location going to be where you are going? Is it better than where you are now? It does no good to evacuate where you are, where you know everything, to a strange place where you know nothing and find out it's worse. So that's a big, big thing. And your question Alex, in the beginning was, how do you know when to evacuate and so forth? Uh, that's a loaded question. and We may deal with it separately. Who do you need to vote notify if you are going to evacuate? How long will it take? How far do you have to go? And do you know the route? Have you been on the route? For instance, when we were in Kenya, the embassy said, go the back roads to Tanzania. There's no map that shows the back roads to Tanzania. It's not on Google. It's not on Waze. So take some time, if you know there's a potentialist running, take some time, get in your vehicle and start driving, take a local person with you and find a way that may not appear on maps but would be safe. In many cases, an unused road is way safer than a heavily traveled road, but you need to know that ahead of time. Take travel documents with you. 
Don't run out of the house and leave your passports behind, your car registration, all those kinds of things. You may be stopped along the way and have to provide those, that information. Have a local person you leave in charge when you're gone. If you have a, a, a house servant in your house, put them in charge of your house when you're gone. If you don't, a church member, somebody you can rely on who can protect the premises that you leave. Uh, what supplies do you need? Anytime a crisis is coming, you are always wise to fill up your vehicle full and have a few jerry cans, or whatever you call them where you are, fuel cans that you can take with that's enough fuel to get you where you need to go without having to stop and buy it somewhere. You need enough, number one, water. Water is a crisis, especially in hot places, very quickly. Do you have enough water on supply? Do you have bottles of water that you keep and you rotate routinely? So if you have to leave, you grab them and you go. Don't keep water in a storage for six months or eight months and then take it with you. It may be stale, it may be bad for you. Take some small amounts of chlorine bleach with you, laundry bleach. You can always put uh, three or four drops in a liter of water, even bad water, shake it, let it sit a while, and you can drink it without any harm. You need to take medications with you, those kinds of things. Have a go bag. When crisis comes, everybody needs a carry-on size bag already packed, copy of your passport in it, change of clothes, medications if you have them, some non-perishable food supplies. And you, we can get you a list and resources that Alex can post later of what all goes in the go bag. It should be sitting somewhere if the crisis escalates by the front door, by the back door, somewhere where you're going to leave the house at short notice. The word comes, you have to get out right now. You don't have time to pack a go bag. It needs to be there. You grab it and you go. Flexible bags are always preferable over a hard-sided bag. If you have to throw them, they don't hurt somebody who catches them, etc. Uh, children's documents. This becomes a big, big issue that's very difficult to deal with. If one parent is taking some children one place and the other parent taking children another place, you must have a documented letter signed by an attorney or by a, uh, some legal representative that authorizes you to take children with copies of their documents. If you live in a culture where your children's last name is not the same as your name and you are taking them with you, you need some document that shows that they are your child because the name doesn't show it. Very, very crucial. And can you make an arrangement ahead of time with some local people who can help you use their vehicle? They know the road, whatever that they can take you. That's the summary, uh, just a quick summary of many, many, many pages of, uh, of documents you can go through to help you get a great understanding on what to do in a crisis. And the bottom right. statement that is going to be copies of documents I think Alex will post that you can see uh, to give you an idea of what you can do. That's a big mouthful, Alex, but uh, that's a quick summary. John, we have, well, we have a question here on our Q&A from Mark. And the question is, power to act would mean that they would have additional powers than normal. Usually, ADCOM or board actions are required. So this is giving extra power during the emergency. Am I understanding this correctly? That is the question. Absolutely. If you are head of a hospital that's out in a remote place, the hospital board and or even the conference or the, the division union, whoever is the oversight body of that hospital, needs to authorize 
somebody to act in emergencies. That is absolutely correct. Thank you, John. Now, friends, we invite you to um, use the Q&A box to share your questions with us. I will lead with a very interesting question. I have this question. Um, my wife and I, we've lived um, uh, first in Central Asia for about 10 years, then in the Middle East, another five years. And it's, you know, from time to time, we would think we've lived through two full-scale revolutions when the government was basically removed uh, violently from place. And we had to look for food. We had to go into the car and listen on the radio, whether, you know, crowds are coming our way or not. Should we run away or should we not? These were very interesting situations. So the question, John, that I would like to bring to you to start this Q&A section is, is this. But I, I do this, and as you answer... I invite our audience, our friends here who are participating, to submit your questions into Q&A box if we have any so that we can discuss them. So here's the question. How should I be sure as a missionary that it's time for me to leave, that it's time to evacuate? It's a moral dilemma because if I go too early, local people will think, what will, what will they think of me, that I am just not there for them? If I go too late, it may be dangerous for my family. So how to know the right time? There's no answer to your question uh, because every situation is so different. If I give you the story that we, was just shared with us yesterday from a doctor who had to leave West Africa, it's even compounded for a medical person who has signed an oath to provide medical services under all circumstances to the needy people. So what does it say if you have decided it's no longer safe for you and you have to leave? You know, how do you live with your conscience as a doctor when you are leaving behind people who will have no treatment, no source of treatment when you are gone? And how long will you be gone for? Okay, so this is a tremendous dilemma. It's a spiritual dilemma. It's a social dilemma. It's a missiological dilemma that has no easy answer. Number one, you remember I said in my presentation that the prime, prime, prime goal of any action is safety. If you train as a firefighter, if you train as a policeman, if you train as an emergency responder, they drill into your head. Do not become part of the problem. The minute you become part of the problem, you put a heavier load on those who are trying to solve the problem. You switch from being a source of relief to being a burden to the relief providers. I'm trying to stress this point. So if you do not assess keeping in mind the safety of everybody, you are going to make a decision too late. So what are the factors that stack up that push you to say, we have to go now? If people are gathering in your community and are having violent actions, the car radio is a great source of local information. Even if the power goes off, your car radio will still work. Having some local people you can talk to who can give you a frank, unbiased assessment of how it is along the street. And understand that along your street has to be evaluated based on do you have to use that street to leave? If that's the only way for you to leave, you need to leave sooner than if there's a back way to leave. And I hope my point is very clear. If you wait until life is threatened and you have to go through that threat to get out, 
you've waited too long. You are better off relocating when you can do it safely than waiting until you are held up and pulled out of the car and put in some uncomfortable place, families separated, women are abused. Get out before it reaches that situation. You are going to have to, at some point, be callous to your own conscience and your community by leaving. Your safety is more important than the image that is left by you leaving. Because if you are harmed or killed, you have nothing to provide back to anyone. I know that's a selfish statement and can be challenged theologically because we may want to say, you know, I'm willing to give my life for these people. Is that going to help them more than you getting out temporarily than coming back? Probably not. So you need to look at all the safety factors. If the volcano is erupting and you see the ash cloud coming and you know it's poisonous gas, why are you going to wait? Get out when you can. Get out sooner because you have no idea how quickly it's going to come. If you've heard that there's a huge earthquake out in the ocean and there's a big wave coming, don't get your camera out to take a picture. Get to where you will be safe before there's such a rush, you cannot go anywhere. So I can't answer your question in one word, Alex. It's uh, you must assess, determine safety and act accordingly. And as we conclude today's episode, let me remind you to subscribe to the IWM podcast. And if you want to support our work even more, share this episode. Share this entire podcast with someone. Give them your recommendation and thoughts. Why we all want them to be part of this community, of our community. Next week, friends, we have a fascinating topic lined up for you. It will be all about how you can serve on an effective multicultural team. Those, unfortunately, are rare. We know. But we want yours, your team, your intercultural, your multicultural team to be a blessing to you, to all the members and the host community around it. My name is Alex Ott and I am looking forward to seeing you next week. Mm-hmm.